0: I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, it is November, so I have for you a new special report. It's titled, The Approaching Derivative Implosion, How Your Bank and Investments May Be Affected. To get your copy of the report, as well as some bonus information, all you need to do is visit the website, requestyourreport.com. The website is requestyourreport.com. Just let me know where to mail that report as well as the bonus information, and I'll be very glad to get it out to you. Um, And I will do that at no cost to you and no obligation to you. You know, it's been an interesting year in the markets, as I'll discuss with my special guest today, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. And metals have been all over the board, but there is something relating to the metals market that a lot of people are not aware of. And I want to take just a few minutes in this segment to talk to you about that, mainly because this past week, silver put on a huge rally, 8.67%. It rallied uh, during the first week of November. Now, over the course of this year the disparity in pricing, the difference in pricing between the paper price of silver or the spot price of silver and the price of physical metals has widened. So to put that another way, the premium over spot at which physical metals sell has increased in calendar year 2022. What does that mean? Well, the spot price really is is a reference price. And if you're going to sell metals or you're going to buy metals, you're typically going to collect more if you're selling than the spot price. And you're actually going to pay more than the spot price if you're buying. Now, as I am recording this week's program, the spot price of an ounce of silver is just over $21. But if you want to go out and buy an ounce of physical silver, you will not find an ounce of silver to be had anywhere for the spot price. Now, physical silver has always sold at a premium to the spot price, but these premiums have now dramatically increased, and I want to talk about why that is a bit in this segment. Now, again, these prices can vary dramatically, but as I'm recording this week's program, Even though the spot price of silver is about $21 an ounce, if you're going to go out and buy a one-ounce silver American Eagle, and these are the one-ounce silver coins minted by the U.S. Mint, you're going to pay approximately $17 to $18 per ounce as a premium. So if the spot price is $21, you'll pay $38 or $39 for a one-ounce American Eagle. A one-ounce Canadian maple leaf silver coin, which is exactly the same amount of silver as an Eagle, but it's, this is minted by the uh, Canadian Mint, you're going to pay about $11 as a premium to spot. And if you go out and just buy a one-ounce silver bar or a one-ounce silver round that is minted by a reputable mint, you're probably going to pay about a $7 premium to spot. And a 100-ounce silver bar, you're going to pay a premium to spot of about $4 an ounce. So the spot price of silver, when you see silver prices going across the bottom of your screen, if you're watching a news channel, that price is not at all representative of the physical market for silver. So what causes this disparity to exist, and what has caused this disparity to widen significantly as of late? Well, silver futures contracts are really where the answer lies. Now, a silver futures contract is traded on the COMEX, which is a commodity exchange. An investor can buy a silver futures contract which controls 5,000 ounces of silver. So, if you're an investor who thinks the price of silver is going to rise, you might buy a silver futures contract with a specific maturity date. Now, when that maturity date arrives, you can sell the contract for a profit, assuming the price of silver has gone up, or you can take delivery of the 5,000 ounces of silver that you control with the futures contract. This is really where the disparity is coming from. Historically, investors often took the profits in cash on a profitable futures trade. So when that maturity date hit, Instead of saying, give me the silver, they would just sell the contract and take the profit in cash. But of late, more and more investors are taking delivery of the silver. This developing trend is changing the dynamics of this market. Now, the COMEX market has always been highly leveraged. What that means is there's always been a small amount of physical silver actually backing the futures contracts that are traded. Now, with the increasing number of traders who are electing to take delivery of the silver when their contracts reach the settlement date, COMEX silver inventories are actually running low. Now, as I am recording this, according to COMEX, there are 34 million ounces of silver in their vaults. Now that, in and of itself, probably doesn't mean too much. In fact, it might sound like a lot of silver, but that 34 million ounces of silver that COMEX tells us would be in the vaults is the lowest number of silver ounces in the COMEX vaults since June 20 of 2017. Almost five years ago. Open interest is now 229% of all vaulted silver. That's according to the latest COMEX statistics that I could find. Now, if you're not familiar with the term open interest, open interest is just the total of all outstanding contracts that have not been settled. So what does that mean? Well, what that means is if about 40% of open contracts stand for delivery, which is admittedly unlikely... But if 40% of open contracts said, I don't want to take my profits in cash, I want the silver, the vaulted silver supply will be exhausted. Now this fact, coupled with the fact that I happen to believe that the Fed may now be floating trial balloons for a pivot what does that mean? Well, it's a policy reversal. If they go from increasing interest rates to reducing interest rates, if they go from a hawkish approach to a dovish approach, and once again pursue easy money policies, that could also be very bullish for silver as the year winds down and 2023 arrives. Now, Mr. Powell made it very clear after the Fed meeting recently that he intends to stay the course. He intends to do what he needs to do to get inflation under control. But increasingly, there are dissenting voices at the Fed. One of those dissenting voices was from Mary Daly. Mary Daly is the San Francisco Federal Reserve president And this is what she had to say. This was reported by Reuters. She said the U.S. Central Bank, referring, of course, to the Federal Reserve, should avoid putting the economy into an unforced downturn by raising interest rates too sharply. And she said it's time to start talking about slowing the pace of the hikes in interest rates. Now, despite... Ms. Daly's comments, as you all know, the Fed did increase interest rates 75 basis points or three quarters of 1%. Now, Daly, prior to the Fed making this announcement that interest rates would go up 0.75%, had this to say, quote, we might find ourselves, and the markets have certainly priced this in, with another 75 basis point increase. But I would really recommend... People don't take that away and think, well, it's 75 forever. She said, I, I hear a lot of concern right now that we are just going to go for broke, but that's actually not how we or I think about policy data, about, about policy at all. With rates near the neutral level where economic activity is neither constrained nor stimulated, Daly said the Fed is moving into a second phase in policy tightening that should be thoughtful and incredibly data-dependent. Well, these statements made by Ms. Daly, in my view, might indicate a softening of monetary policy moving ahead into next year. Now, I have stated in the past that I don't think increasing interest rates to the current level of 375 to 4% will get inflation under control. I'll get Gary Schilling's Uh, view in the next two segments but as i close this segment let me remind you that if you're just joining me i do have a november 2022 special report available for you it is titled the approaching derivative implosion how your bank and investments may be affected i'd like to send you a copy of that report along with some bonus information i'd be glad to do that if you'll visit the website requestyourreport.com and let me know where to mail the report and the information i'll do so at no cost to you, and no future obligation to you. And again, the report is the approaching derivative implosion, how your bank and investments may be affected. When you go to the website, uh, requestyourreport.com, and request the report, I'll also send you a copy of my best-selling revenue sourcing book, um, as well as the little black book on Social Security Maximization. So again, requestyourreport.com is the website. Uh, Just let me know where to mail all that information, and I'd be very glad to send it out to you. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is returning guest, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Uh, Gary is the publisher of the uh, highly respected and widely read newsletter, Insight. And uh, if you'd like to learn more about his work, you can go to agaryshilling.com or you can call the office at 888-346-7444 to get more information about his Insight newsletter. Gary, welcome back to the program.
1: Glad to be back with you, Dennis.
0: So, Gary, in your most recent Inside Newsletter, uh, you uh, mentioned a quote from Winston Churchill. And I'm going to try not to mess this up. I think he said, the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. And uh, you suggested that that quote is reminiscent of maybe where we find ourselves today as far as stocks are concerned.
1: I think so. That was uh, in the dark days of of World War II, June 18th of 1940. And um, and I, I think it's uh, an interesting analogy because for my money, this bear market in stocks has two phases. The first phase was because of the Fed raising interest rates. And that, of course, has been devastating, particularly for growth stocks, where their price is considered to be the discounted value of future earnings way out in the distant future. And and the higher the interest rates at which they're discounted, the less they're worth but it's it's been very, very destructive uh all the way around and the fed is out to is out to kill inflation and they've made that clear the second phase is the weakness in earnings, and this really follows from the first phase uh and it's interesting that that many in Wall Street, many investors, many bulls uh really hope that it's all over and and that's what we've had we've had a series of declines and then aborted rallies and further declines. But but the, Jay Powell, the chairman of the Fed, continually says, hey, we're not through yet. <laughs> and we're not through. And I think as long as people are not convinced the Fed is serious, that that's what you're going to have. And they're going to stick by their guns. And we're going to see a lot further weakness, both in the economy. We're either in or closer recession. And the stock market, we, we've we been forecasting done, as you might recall, back in January, a 40% decline in stocks. Uh, we're about halfway there. First half dominated by the rise in interest rates. The second half by weakness in earnings.
0: So, Gary, you said we're on the verge of a recession. I mean, when you look at the, the data, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the first two quarters of this year, we did have economic contraction. Uh, regardless of what we're supposed to call it, doesn't that already meet the technical definition of a recession?
1: Well, I think so. There's no uh, there's no precise definition, except for an outfit called the National Bureau of Economic Research. As you all know, they make the call, and no administration of either party would ever want to say, "Hey, we're we're in a recession. We passed the peak in business." And NBER looks at a whole bunch of data in terms of. Uh, economic output, consumer spending, housing, etc., etc., and then they make the call. Now, they want to make absolutely sure that the numbers are in to substantiate their declaration of a peak in business, beginning of a recession, and and with all the delays in data uh, reporting and revisions, it's well into the recession before they Make that determination. Well, you know, if they come out six months into the recession and say, "Hey, we're in a recession," that's about as thin as a pocket in your underwear. So, <laughs> so you've got to look at a lot of you got to look at a lot of other things, which is what we do, and we we report this and have been since the first year in our monthly newsletter, Insight. Uh, we look at the stock market, a leading indicator, but we look at the the yield curve, what the, uh, another expression of what the Fed is doing, uh, the the Fed itself in terms of tightening. Uh, small business, optimism, consumer sentiment, which has deteriorated, a whole host of things. And really say we're probably in a recession. But as I say, there's uh, it's not an easy definition. And in a way, they say you've got to look at a lot of these other things and make your own determination. And that, that's what we've done.
0: So, Gary, you mentioned consumer sentiment. Uh, c- can you talk a bit about how consumer sentiment has changed or evolved uh, as this year has progressed?
1: Yeah, consumer sentiment has deteriorated uh, tremendously. You look at major surveys, one done by the University of Michigan, uh, your state, and, and the other by the conference board, and they both show the same thing, both in terms of consumers' appraisal of the current situation and what they expect going, going ahead. And uh, this is no great surprise to see this decline in sentiment, because if you look at, at, at consumer incomes, wages, adjusted for inflation, they're declining. now. A lot, of, a lot of media says, oh, wages are decli- increasing. No, 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 not when you adjust for inflation, not when you look at purchasing power. And retail sales, again, adjusted for inflation, have been declining for uh, the last eight months. Uh, so, so the economy has been weak, both in terms of incomes and in terms of spending. And a lot of, of uh, consumers, of course, they got all the money from the stimulus checks back with the pandemic. Uh, but they've spent that money, and, and you say, well, if you don't have it from your ongoing paycheck, uh, where are you going to get money to spend? Well, one is out of your house, uh, but the uh, house prices have declined, and the cash-out refinance mortgages, that's a—that's ancient history, at least for now. And the other source of funding uh, is stocks. And, uh, of course, the stock market uh, now now down over 20%. There isn't that isn't an easy source of funding. So there really isn't the the alternatives and that people can return to what what some people are doing running up their debts. You look at what's happening to auto loans and credit card loans. uh, That's another source of of, uh, income. But the interest costs on those are going up. Uh, That's there's no free lunch.
0: Gary, let's talk about debt accumulation because uh, you, you know you would uh, have probably better data than I do, but it just seems that uh, consumers uh, in ever increasing numbers are using credit cards to to bridge this gap, and we know that's not a permanent solution, and and that trajectory has to reverse at some point. Uh, will that intensify uh, th- this recession and and mm-hmm. even further weaken consumer sentiment when we when we kind oh, of hit our collective. oh sure,
1: land? and and that that's a pretty normal phenomenon that. People, when they're stressed, they they just don't want to give up, they admit reality. So they'll say they'll run down their assets, they'll run up their liabilities, or borrowing. But then they get to the point where uh, get to the point where uh, delinquencies increase, and the in this case, the credit card companies uh, start to clamp down on on uh, the interest rate charges and they uh, and the people that they'll that they'll finance uh, through credit card loans. Uh, so, the whole thing can come to a pretty rapid uh climax uh, but it's it's a, it's it 's kind of a last last minute desperation approach uh, for people to maintain spending that they no longer can afford
0: here as you 're talking i 'm thinking back uh, i 've interviewed you uh many times over the years, and you wrote a book uh uh, correct me if I get the title uh, slightly wrong, but uh, you know the age of deleveraging, and 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 are we now seeing you know with stocks declining, and now we'll talk a little bit more about real estate. Are are we now seeing what you forecast in that book?
1: Well, I think so. It's coming. It's coming and uh, fits and starts uh, to be sure. But I think we are generally in a a period where people are working down uh, indebtedness. Uh, you get spurts of it like recently, and mention sort of desperation when people don't have funds otherwise. Uh but it is uh I I think that is where where we are and we're gonna see we're gonna see more of that. Uh, you, you don't I don't think you have the prospects of of uh, huge increases in stock prices. You know, if you look at stock price in the last ten years, a lot of the gain was because of an increase in price earnings ratios. In other words it wasn't earnings, it was the valuation on those earnings. Well I don't see that in the future. Uh, and and also, uh, I don't see that consumers are in any great uh, frame of mind to further increase debts. They've got plenty as it is. So, I, I just don't think you've got the the, the wherewithal to see a, a a big push in the economy and in consumer incomes and spending.
0: So, Gary, you mentioned at the outset of this segment, and as we get uh, we got a few minutes left in this segment, as we. Talk more about uh, stocks and earnings weakness. Uh, what what is your forecast for for earnings moving ahead?
1: Well, I think that I think that we're probably going to see uh, <clears throat> earning decline when you get all done of somewhere in the in the in the twenty to thirty percent area, and even more when you adjust for inflation. Uh, but I, I would I would caution everybody to be very careful of that. And you know, there's a lot of tricks being played in earnings. One of them that I covering our, our, our new insight issue is companies that basically throw out the bad stuff and in this case the rising dollar well you know the rising dollar means that foreign earnings are less are worth less in dollar terms it's a translation loss but an increasing number of companies are saying well we'll look at them uh, without that you know the earnings without the bad stuff <laughs> and that's been pro forma earnings and there's a whole string of things I, I talk about uh, in this latest newsletter, uh, where people have over time tried to uh, tried to make things look better than they are, but when you look at uh, when you look at earnings as reported uh the strong dollar is weakening foreign earnings, and for many companies uh, the s and p five hundred you know about half of their earnings are from abroad, and if you put on top of that the inflation is subtract inflation. Uh, you take those factors out and and the corporate earnings are already declining.
0: Well, my guest today is Dr. A. Gary Schilling. His website is www.agaryschilling.com. If you'd like to learn more about his Insight newsletter, which I would highly suggest you check out, you can give his office a call at 888-346-7444. I'll give that number again in the next segment, but it is 888-346-7444. And I will continue my conversation with Dr. Schilling when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I am chatting today with Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Uh, If you're just tuning in uh, and you're not familiar with Dr. Schilling's work, uh, he publishes a newsletter titled Insight that uh, he's been publishing for many years. Uh, It's something that I read frequently, and I would encourage you to check out. If you'd like to get more information, 888-346-7444 is the number. His website is agaryschilling.com. So Gary uh in in the last segment we were talking about uh corporate earnings we 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 talked about wages and uh, uh all those things were when adjusted for inflation and that seems to be the big uh big economic topic here understandably so moving ahead um do you think the Fed's policies are going to be effective at taming the inflation monster to use those terms
1: Yes But it's in combination with a lot of other things. If you look at what happened since early this year, we had a big burst of inflation. Uh, Part of it was reopening the economy, the frictions involved in that. Uh, It was the supply chain disruptions, again, that we had with the pandemic. And, of course, most recently, it's been the war in Ukraine, uh, which has played havoc with uh, grain and energy prices and so on. Well, those, those things are really outside the Fed's control. The Fed can't do much about supply, but the Fed can do an awful lot about demand by raising interest rates and making credit less available, and that really kills demand, borrowing, and people's willingness to spend. Uh, now, I think that some of these supply-side issues are are beginning to come up, uh, uh, under control. If you look at sensitive commodity prices, uh, copper, steel, even oil, they're down considerably from their earlier peaks. Uh, look at shipping rates. Uh, the number of ships stacked up in the West Coast and the in the ports of of Long Beach and and uh, Los Angeles. You know there were a hundred ships waiting to unload. Now they're free. Uh, you you really solved that that bottleneck problem. So I think of the supply side issues are are uh, working toward lower inflation, and I think inflation is probably already peaked. And when you add in that what the Federal Reserve is doing in terms of locking down demand uh, by raising interest rates, tightening credit, I think inflation is probably going to recede a lot faster than many people think. Now we've been running the latest number, eight point two percent CPI year over year. Uh, I I I wouldn't be a bit surprised that. By the middle of next year, we're down to 4% or maybe even less.
0: Well, 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 Gary, when you talk about interest rates uh, uh, as it relates to, to real estate, and we touched on this in the last segment, so maybe we can dig in a little bit deeper. Uh, you know, when you take a look at the beginning of the year, a, a 30-year mortgage was somewhere around 3% or lower, and now it's like 7.5%. Um, right. The real estate market seems to be, I mean, we haven't really seen it yet, but it seems to be the numbers are, are deteriorating rapidly. What, what's your perspective?
1: Oh they are. They are and uh, it it's it's really not new. We've been we've been talking about writing about it for a while. I mean existing house prices have been declining for about 8 months. Now it's getting into new home prices and inventories of new and existing houses are rising. In other words, the supply is now outrunning the demand. Uh, and the uh, people's willingness, you look at the uh, realtors, National Associated Realtors' numbers of traffic in houses and you know people's willingness to buy, they're, they're all de- declining. Now, housing is very important. It's only about 4% of GDP, residential construction. But when you include everything else related to it, moving expenses, brokerage fees, uh, the, the money that people took out of uh, refinancing mortgages earlier and spent on other things and so on, we yeah. estimate that it, it really amounts to about 10% of GDP in total. And it's very, very volatile because it's so sensitive to interest rates. You you think about it. Uh, somebody borrows on a, on a FHA loan, uh, puts down 3%. Uh, you know, that's a 33 times leverage. I mean, that's a huge leverage. And it doesn't take much in the way of price changes for people to be uh, in in entire trouble, uh, so housing is is small, extremely volatile, and of course it's it's everybody's aware of it. You know, two thirds of people in this country own their houses, so they're very very aware of what's going on to prices, whether they're going to sell their house tomorrow or not, and and rentals. And rentals are are actually coming down as well. So the whole housing sector is softening at a very rapid rate. But that's not to be that's not unexpected given the sensitivity to interest rates and a weakening economy and incomes as well.
0: Well Gary, you had mentioned that at the beginning of the year you, you had forecast about a forty percent decline in stocks and we've seen about half that. Uh what's your forecast for real estate?
1: Uh, <laughs> not pretty <laughs> not pretty.
0: <laughs> I uh, guess yeah
1: yeah I I think we could I think we could see now house prices are really just just starting to to, to crack uh, but I think we could see 15%, 20% decline in, in house prices over the next three or four quarters.
0: So, Gary, it's been an ugly year if you're an investor, if you've got money in an IRA or a 401K. Um, uh, bonds and bond funds are down. Stocks are down. Um, has there been any bright spots this year?
1: Well, you know, Dennis, we we manage money, and we're, we've, we're having a good year. Now, that's because we have a... Uh, what's called a risk-off portfolio. Risk-on is when you own a lot of stocks and so on. Risk-off is when uh, we're short stocks. We do this with exchange-traded funds and our managed accounts. We're, we're short the uh, S&P. We're long the dollar, and there's been a flocking to the dollar uh, because of it's a safe haven, and we're also short of commodities, of uh, copper in particular, because that's a very good measure of. Global industrial production, copper goes into almost anything manufactured. And the other thing I like about copper is it doesn't have a cartel on either the supply or demand side. Oil does, of course, on the uh, supply side. Uh, but those are the things. We also actually own a few long treasuries. Uh, they've gotten beaten up this year, but it's sort of an anchor to windward. We want to have a little spread of risk. But uh, that's worked. That worked, worked well for us so far.
0: So, Gary, you mentioned your portfolio is risk-off. Uh, do you see any point in the near future that you will go back to a risk-on posture?
1: Well, you, you, you need to see a couple of things happen, in my view, before you get there. One is you have to see concrete evidence that the economy is falling apart, that people are giving up, and that the Federal Reserve has, is shifting gears. Now, the Fed often, in the last four recessions, the Fed has actually shifted from tightness to ease, and I'm looking at the federal funds rate as a measure of that. They've made that transition even before the peak in business. But this time, I don't think they will because they 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 were so concerned about their credibility. They were so late to the party in dealing with inflation earlier this year that I think they're going to be uh, extremely long in their, in their tightening phase. But you really you don't tend to get a bottom until until the Fed moves and I say that could be really the middle of next year. The other thing that I that I look for and uh graphically Dennis, I call it the puke point.
0: <laughs> the <laughs> puke point
1: is where where people want to go regurgitate their last stock and never come, come back and buy another one. And what that means in a in a in a in a very uh mechanical way is that you've run out of sellers that everybody that can be shaken out, everybody that is 10-so 10, 10 has sold, and you're left with nothing but uh, potential buyers. And, of course, what we've seen repeatedly in this year is that every time uh, every time uh, investors say, oh, it's all over, we can go back in, uh, and then, of course, the Fed, Jay Powell, the chairman of the Fed, comes in and says, oh, no, not yet, not yet, and slams them again. But you you just have not reached that capitulation uh, by any stretch of the imagination.
0: So Gary, and, and when you reach, when you talk about the puke point, which is a it's a great term, I might borrow that term from you actually. But, <laughs> no, please do. <laughs> but but but, but, but it, it seems like when you when you see despite the fact that this this market this year has really been stair stepping down, if you look at it on a on a chart, a series of lower highs and lower lows. Uh, it seems that there's still a fair amount of bullish sentiment out there, and I, I don't measure it, but is that a, is that an accurate assessment?
1: Oh yeah, and that's exactly what I'm talking about, Dennis. I think that you know people are are assuming. Now, you know, you just look in the last couple of days. There's a feeling that inflation maybe has it passed its peak. Well, you know, I think that's been pretty clear. I mentioned these particularly sensitive commodity prices declining, and and uh, house prices and so on. Uh, but but to but to but to project that into the whole end. Well, why? Are, why are those prices declining? It's declining because the economy is weakening, and i would say that's the second phase of of the uh, of the bear market, if you will. So, yeah, I don't think there's uh, I don't think there's any willingness of people to capitulate now. There's still there still is that hope that it's all over and we can go back in the water, uh, however you want to phrase it.
0: So, Gary, let's talk briefly about the U.S. dollar, because as you mentioned, uh, relative to the trading partners of the U.S., the dollar has been exceptionally strong this year. Do you anticipate that will continue?
1: I think so. Uh, the, you know, the dollar is the safe haven in, in the world. There's, there's really no rival to this. You look at and, – and remember that currencies are always one currency against another. They're never in absolute terms. But if you look at other currencies, the euro – uh, you're, you're, uh, the, the euro area is a, we- is a weaker area economically than we are, and they've got the problems with Russia and energy. Uh, the Japanese, you know, they, they're on their own. They're on their own uh, scale. They're not raising interest rates. They're basically selling dollars for yen to try to support the, the currency. Uh, you look elsewhere in the world, and, and there's, just no, uh, there's just no substitute for the dollar. And one of the interesting things is that the dollar interest rates in, uh, in the U.S. are much higher than they are in other major countries. We look at 10-year uh, Treasury note yields, and in the U.S., uh, they're you know two or three percentage points higher than in most other major countries. Well, what does that mean? That means that investors can buy uh, U.S. Treasuries and gain a, a yield of a couple percentage points, and with the dollar going up, they get a our currency translation gain as well uh, so, so you have a lot of factors that really favor the dollar uh, and I, I don't see a reason that that's going to change anytime soon
0: well my guest today has been Dr. A. Gary Schilling his website is agaryschilling.com if you'd like more information about his insight newsletter I would encourage you to give his office a call the number is 888-346-7444 Gary, always a pleasure to catch up with you. It's amazing how fast a couple 12-minute segments goes by when I start to pick your brain, but I'd love to have uh, you back down the road.
1: You're good at it. <laughs> you're good at it. <laughs> Not well, much left there to pick.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> I appreciate your, uh, your perspective, and I know the listeners do as well, and uh, we will have you back down the road. Thanks again for joining Alrighty. us.
1: All righty. Thanks a lot. We'll return Bye.
0: after these words. Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. Thanks again to my special guest, Dr. A. Gary Schilling, for joining me on today's program. It is November, which means I've got a brand new special report for you. It is titled, The Approaching Derivative Implosion, How Your Bank and Investments May Be Affected. To get your copy of the report, as well as some bonus information, visit the website, requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. Maybe some of you heard about the bill that is now before Congress. Now, let me tell you that I'm a big fan of this bill, although I don't think it is going to go anywhere. The bill is H.R. 9157 introduced by Alex Mooney, who is a congressman from West Virginia. Now, the bill is titled the Gold Standard Restoration Act. The title probably tells you why I don't think the bill has a chance of becoming law. But for reasons I'll discuss in this segment, I think it would solve a lot of problems and perhaps even create one to be fair and balanced. Well, this bill stipulates the U.S. dollar would have to be backed by physical gold owned by the U.S. Treasury. Now, the bill is really divided into three different sections. I want to discuss each of them with you, but the first section of the bill simply establishes the need for a return to a gold-backed U.S. dollar. So, since 1971... August 15, to be exact, the U.S. dollar has been a fiat currency. Through August 14 of 1971, the U.S. dollar was redeemable for gold at a rate of $35 an ounce. Now, remember that $35 an ounce figure as I go through the rest of the information in this segment. The U.S. dollar, or as the bill more precisely refers to them, Federal Reserve Notes. In fact, if you look at a $10 bill or a $20 bill that you might have in your pocket, it says Federal Reserve Note. Well, if you take a look, and this is outlined in the bill introduced by Mr. Mooney, the Federal Reserve Note has lost purchasing power on a massive scale. Since calendar year 2000, about two decades ago, the Federal Reserve note has lost 30% of its purchasing power. Now, I don't know where Mr. Mooney got his information, but my guess is that's based on the official consumer price index. And in real terms, it's likely the Federal Reserve note has lost more in purchasing power than that. Since 1913, when the Federal Reserve was founded, the dollar has lost 97% of its purchasing power. And the bill makes a very important point. The bill argues that with an inflation rate of 2%, the Fed won't preserve the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar, but in 35 years, assuming they can stick to their 2% inflation target, which is a difficult target for them to stick to presently, the purchasing power will be halved. The bill points out that it is in the best interest of U.S. citizens and businesses to have a stable U.S. dollar. The bill, in my view, correctly points out that the inflationary U.S. dollar has been eroding the industrial base of the U.S. economy, enriching the owners of financial assets while endangering workers' jobs, workers' wages, and workers' savings. Now, the second section of the bill describes in more detail as to how you would actually re anchor the US dollar to gold. The bill states that the US Secretary of Treasury has to define the US dollar banknotes using a fixed fine gold weight 30 days after the law goes into effect. So the Secretary of the Treasury has to say here's how gold and dollars can be converted. The Secretary of the Treasury would have to come up with a conversion rate or an exchange rate, if you will. Once that happened, then according to the bill, the Fed would have to ensure the U.S. bank notes are redeemable for physical gold at the designated rate at the Fed. And if the Fed doesn't do that, then the U.S. Treasury would, and the Treasury would take the banks, the Fed bank's assets as collateral. Now, the third section of the bill I find to be very interesting. The third section of the bill specifies how a fair gold price in the U.S. dollar can develop in an orderly manner within 30 days after the bill has taken effect. The U.S. Treasury, according to the bill, and the Fed would have to publish all of their gold holdings. They would have to disclose all purchases, disclose all sales, swaps, leases, and all other gold transactions that have taken place since August 15 of 1971. The entire paper trail would become visible. I think that alone would be extremely revealing and extremely interesting. The second thing that this third section of the bill would require is that the U.S. Treasury and the Fed would also have to publicly disclose all gold redemptions and transfers in the 10 years preceding August 15 of 1971. So essentially, what would happen is this bill, if it became law, would require that we see over 60 years of transaction history by the U.S. Treasury and the Federal Reserve as it relates to gold. Now, I thought it'd be fun to talk about what, gold prices might do if this bill became law, which I think will not happen. If you look at the amount of cash in circulation in August of this year, it was about $2.3 trillion. Now, assuming the official physical gold holdings of the U.S. Treasury amount to about 261 million ounces, that would put the price of gold at about $8,700 an ounce. However, if you look at the entire M2 money supply and want to back that all by gold, which this bill would require, then the price of gold would be more than $80,000 per ounce. Now, what would this do? Well, one, it would completely redistribute income and wealth. It would be fatal For the outstanding U.S. dollar debt, U.S. dollar goods prices would rise. Uh, U.S. exports would become very unattractive overseas, but imports would become extremely inexpensive. And once the dollar was re-anchored in gold, inflation would come to an end. And so would the boom and bust cycles that come with easy money followed by tight money. And we're seeing that right now now again it's interesting i would write your congressman i would express support for this bill in the meantime i do have the november report available for you if you'd like to get the november 22 2022 special report it's titled the approaching derivative implosion how your bank and investments may be affected go to requestyourreport.com to request the report i'll send it to you along with some bonus information absolutely free That's my program for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I will be back again next week.